We're now going to have this morning's Bible reading, which you'll find inside your leaflets or in your Bibles from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting at verse 1, and then we're also going to move on to some of uh, chapter 5 into 6. So Ecclesiastes 4. Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hand and ruin themselves. Better is one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone, He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can quickly defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And then Ecclesiastes 5 starting at verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. All goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth to the harm of its owners. 
or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart, and what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness, with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a man, to, for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the, during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. I have seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions and honour so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. Thank you, Alexa, and good morning, everyone. My name is Mark. If we haven't met, it's great to be with you this morning. I think um, Sally quite helpfully acknowledged in the introduction that all of us are coming from slightly different places with a topic like work, depending on what our circumstances are at the moment and what our circumstances in life have been. I remember about 10 years ago when I got my first full-time job out of uni, um, the, one of the things that really struck me was the all-consuming nature of work. Um, as far as the time goes, it's certainly a, a step up in time commitment. Um, also, I recalled how, how stressful periods and, and particular stressful incidents at work could really work their way into, into life outside of work as well. And even when you're not being paid to be doing work, you can be, you can be thinking about what's going on at work. Uh, it can be hard to leave, depending on your role, it can be hard to just leave work at the office and, and have time away from it. Uh, something also that, that I came to realize was how work can, can shape our, our identity quite a lot. Uh, some of you will be aware I, I worked as an engineer for a few years and then I, I resigned from that and did a ministry apprenticeship, so basically a, a, a traineeship at a church. And I noticed, it wasn't so much how people responded to me, but it was, it was how I felt on the inside, the difference between telling people I was an engineer and telling people I was a, I was a ministry apprentice. Like one, one of them, I felt a lot of, I wouldn't say pride, but you, know, you, you feel like people understand your place in the world a lot more, whereas a ministry apprenticeship, you just, I, I, felt, I, I felt less of a sense of, I guess less a sense of being able to, have people look up to me for, for that role. So it probably is pride. Pride probably was the right word <laughs> to, to use for that. Um, so a, a topic like work is going to be different for all of us. And if you've just joined us this morning, we're looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. And the book is written by someone referred to as the teacher. And the teacher is on a search for, for meaning and for satisfaction in life. And this morning, we're going to look as he confronts the topics of work and wealth, two, two related topics. And he shows what can happen when we seek more in them than they can offer. 
but he doesn't leave us without hope. Work can be meaningless, he tells us, but it doesn't have to be. Money can leave us dissatisfied, he tells us, but it doesn't have to. Work and wealth uh, might look very different today to what they did two or 3,000 years ago when the teacher wrote these words, but his observations have much value for us today. Uh, throughout chapter four, as we heard in, in the reading, the teacher begins by putting work under the microscope. And he sees all around him work gone wrong, meaningless work. And I wonder, as we, as we read that reading and as we look at these examples now, whether you can relate to any of these in, in your own circumstances. So firstly, he sees oppression. He sees people with power oppressing those without. As everyone clamors to, to get to the top, it's the poor who get trodden on at the bottom. And maybe you can relate to that to some degree. Maybe you can relate to feeling oppressed and powerless in your work. It also highlights some of the uncomfortable realities that we have in our comfortable existence here today. You know, how many poor people overseas worked in oppressive conditions uh, with little pay to make the pants you're wearing or my phone? It's just one of those uncomfortable realities that we live with in the world. Uh, so the teacher sees oppression. He also witnesses toil and achievement motivated by a desire to get ahead. He sees a world around him that's driven by greed, gain, envy, and comparison. A world full of people who are trying to get ahead of one another. Not a lot unlike our world, actually, I have to say. You know, there have been surveys that have been done that have shown that people would rather earn less money but be earning more money than people around them. So someone would rather be earning $100,000 knowing that the person next to them was earning 75 than earning 150 but having the person next to them earning 200. So it says something about human nature, doesn't it? So what is it that motivates you in your work? If you're, if you're someone who's working at the moment, what is it that motivates you? You know, there are lots of good motivations for our work. There are lots of great motivations for our work. But simply getting ahead of others isn't one of them. If you think about it, if I allow a destructive attitude like envy to motivate me, what other moral compromises am I going to be willing to make? So that's working out of envy. On the flip side of that is laziness. Verse 5, we have the fool who folds his hands and ruins himself. Now, the teacher isn't having a cheap shot at unemployment here, um, but rather the person who could be working. But instead, they're, they're happy to just get by, sponging off other people. And then, verses 7 to 8, there's the rather sad picture here of a man with, with no son and no brother. Now, he may be married, he may have friends, we, we don't know. He's a man who's defined only by his work. He's worked hard to, to build up wealth, depriving himself of much enjoyment along the way. And then one day he, he stops for a moment and he asks himself, why? Who am I doing this for? 
the, the relationships in his life have, have fitted in around his work and, and perhaps disappeared entirely. Um, I heard about someone recently who, who quit their job because they were, they were playing a game with their, their kids, a, a charades game, and one of the kids had to impersonate their dad, and they, they just said, who am I? I work all the time. That was his moment. That was his moment of realization. Uh, verses 13 to 16 then, and now these verses are difficult to understand exactly, but, but what they seem to show is that making it to the top isn't what it might seem. Now, we read of a youth who has overcome great odds to become king. He's made it from the bottom to the top. It's a real rags to riches type of story. Um, but yet, yet his popularity is short-lived. He becomes foolish and unteachable. Power goes to his head. And one day, someone else will take his place. He makes it to the top, but it's not all it's cracked up to be. And it doesn't last. Everyone is expendable. Now, the teacher has given us some examples of work gone wrong here. He's not saying that work is a bad thing. He's just showing how it can, and, and so often does, go wrong. And as I said, perhaps you've personally experienced one or more of these things going wrong in your own work or in your own observations. And having shown how meaningless work can be, the teacher now flips to the other side of the coin and he shows us how unsatisfying wealth can be. Um, have a look at chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied. This too is meaningless. Now you might be aware sociologists have coined the term affluenza to describe an unhealthy relationship with money and material things. It's a very relevant diagnosis in this day and age. The more we have, the more we want. There's always the next thing to get, the next pay bracket to hit. We never arrive. Not only will we want more money, but verse 11, more people will want our money. The teacher we've heard in, in previous chapters was a wealthy man and and he would have experienced this. He would have had a lot of people around him wanting to, to get their hands on some of his wealth. It's not really any different today. We've just got an advertising industry that wants to convince us to spend money on their particular product. Uh, verse 12, even something as simple as a good night's sleep is no more achievable for the rich man than it is for the common laborer. Verse 13, we have this example of wealth that's hoarded to the harm of its owner. Now, perhaps it's someone who's hoarding possession, someone with a, a compulsion to accumulate more things. And perhaps it's, it's simply hoarding money. It's a, a miserly lifestyle, a lack of generosity. And then verse 14, there's the risk of losing wealth. Now, with bad investments, market crashes, scams, global pandemics, sickness, injury, natural disaster, theft, and so much more. There really is no such thing as financial security. It's an oxymoron. The teacher pities people who he, who he sees who have put their hope in money only to lose it and have nothing to provide security for their children. And of course, the ultimate knockdown argument against wealth bringing us true satisfaction is 
We can't take any of it with us when we die. Verses 15 and 16. As everyone comes, so they depart. Again, Ecclesiastes is written with the end in mind. Death is the end. Life under the sun is a zero-sum game. We bring nothing in with us when we come and, and we'll take nothing with us when we die. If we don't lose all of our money while we're alive, we're going to lose it the very second that we die. So that's a, that's a pretty strong argument, but the teacher still isn't finished. In, in chapter six, he tells of the person who has wealth, possessions, honor, everything they could possibly desire, and yet they have no ability to enjoy these things. Wealth can't guarantee that we're going to enjoy life. The teacher's observations about both work and money leave him despondent about life under the sun. Better to never be born, he concludes. Better to never have seen all of the evil that's done under the sun than being unable to enjoy life. Work can be meaningless. Wealth can be unsatisfying. But there are little hints that the teacher has dropped that this isn't the way that it has to be. There's a way that we can get the balance right. Uh, we've seen over the last couple of weeks, if you've been with us, that the teacher is making observations about life under the sun. Uh, that is, it's a purely human view of the world. With, uh, it's a view that leaves God out of the picture. And he wants us to see that this view of the world will never help us to find the meaning and the satisfaction that we long for. But then there are moments in Ecclesiastes, there, there are these brief fleeting moments where the teacher allows his gaze to extend beyond the sun. He brings God into the picture and he shows how the view changes entirely when we bring God in. And when it comes to work and money, the clue to getting the balance right comes from how we were created. Now, so firstly, when we, when we look under the sun, or sorry, when we look beyond the sun, what we see is that we were made for work and relationships. Uh, so if we, go, if we rewind and go right back to the start of the Bible in Genesis chapter one, God says that he's making humans in his own image. And then he tells us two important things about what humans have been made to do. So firstly, we'll work. Uh, we'll rule over the whole world under God. And secondly, we'll do it together. We'll do it in relationship with one another. So work and relationships are a key to, to what it means to be made in God's image. And yet so often, the danger is that we pursue work to the detriment of relationships. I'm not saying that's always the case, but certainly in the teacher's observation, that's, that's the big problem that we can have. And perhaps the reason for that is because I know that I can afford to take my family and my friends for granted, at least for a little while. But if I, if I slack off on my work, if I don't keep my work to a certain standard, then I'm not going to be able to even keep my job, let alone get ahead like I want to. So what's the teacher's solution? What's his solution to this problem of meaningless work? Well, it's a balance with healthy relationships. 
Uh, Chapter four, verse six, better to have less money and more peaceful contentment. Uh, A few verses later in verses nine to 12, he tells us that two are better than one. Now this is sometimes thought of as a wedding passage. I'd say it's more a friendship passage. But the point here is that people go further together than alone. Uh, They can get more work done. They can help one another when they're down. They can defend one another. The point of the the cord of three strands there in verse 12 is that if two are better than one, then, well, three are better than two, and so on. Now, this isn't unique to Christian thinking, is it? The the Bible isn't the only place where where we read that relationships are good. Um, Research into burnout tells us that overwork is a a contributing factor, a major contributing factor, while a key to recovery is having meaningful connection with other people. TV shows tap into this ideal of of being in relationship. You you know, you think of classic shows like Friends and and Neighbours, and there's always a core friendship group at work. It's, It's a desirable thing to be in relationship with others. And the teacher is reminding us that We need to have that balance right. Uh, Not putting work above relationships, nor nor putting relationships above work, for that matter, but giving both their right place. So how's your balance? How's your balance between work and relationships? Now, I realize a topic like work, there's there's no silver bullets. Work is one of those things that we have to do, and we're not always going to get it on our terms, but this balance should be something that we're always striving to get closer and closer to. Um, So do your family members and your friends get the best of you? Or just what's left over from work? Do you you find yourself physically present but but mentally absent when you're with people? Uh, I find this a challenge to be honest. There'll be times when I'm I'm talking to Alicia or I'm playing with Rory, um, but but my head is spinning with with some sort of work situation that's going on. And I have to remind myself, Rory's not going to care how successful I am in my role if I'm an absent father. Alicia's not going to care how successful I am in my role if I'm an absent husband. For our teenagers and young adults here, this is a really important question to be thinking through before you even get into the workforce. Set yourself up to have that balance. Having healthy relationships is just as important as being successful in your career. And if you're you're having doubts about that, read chapter four, verse eight a few times and then then think about it. Be clear on what your definition of of success is before you try and chase it. Because if you define success purely in terms of work and wealth and and worldly success, then you're setting yourself up for a lot of problems down the track. Of course, the most important relationship that we were made for is our relationship with God. We were created to enjoy God. And so when money and possessions don't satisfy us, the solution, which we saw back in chapter two as well, is recognizing God as the good giver. Uh, So if you notice, at the end of chapter five and and the start of chapter six, there 
there are a couple of people that we meet. There's, there's someone in chapter 5, verse 19, who is able to enjoy their wealth and possessions. But then there's someone in chapter 6, verse 2, who isn't. And the reason for that is because they don't recognize these things as gifts. They think that this is all there is. Um, But wealth and possessions are God's gift. Enjoyment of them is God's gift. Happiness in our toil is God's gift. The key to truly enjoying good things, it's not the things themselves. It's knowing and finding our joy in the God who gave us those things. Material things are never going to satisfy us. They were never meant to. If that's all we think there is, then we're always going to want more. A few hundred years after the teacher wrote these words, the Apostle Paul wrote some very similar words in the book of 1 Timothy. I think we've, we've got it up on the screen. Uh, we read, Paul writes to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. Very Ecclesiastes right there. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. How do we have this godliness with contentment? Well, by recognising that there's a better treasure to come. Paul writes this to Timothy a few verses later. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. God made us for work and relationships. He made our hearts to enjoy the the good gifts that he provides for us. But much more than that, he made our hearts to find fulfillment in him alone. But human sins, we rejected God. We chose to live under our own rule. And so God cursed both our work and our relationships. And this is what the teacher observes in the world around him. It's what we observe in the world around us. Sin ruins our work. Sinful desires fail us. Because things were never meant to satisfy us. Work, wealth, houses, cars, fine wine, they were never meant to fulfill our desires. Only our relationship with our creator was meant to do that. Work was always meant to be balanced by healthy relationships with God and with one another. But God didn't want to leave us ruined by sin. He wanted to restore things to the way they once were, the way that they were always meant to be. And so he's promised that one day sin will be undone forever. We'll enjoy work without the futility. We'll enjoy relationships without the brokenness. We'll see and we'll enjoy God forever. You know, if food, drink, holidays, movies, ocean views, nice weather, if all those things are good, then how much better 
is the one who gives us those things. How much better will heaven be? How much better will it be when we see God face to face? And to make all this possible, God sent his own son, Jesus, to die in our place for our sin, taking the punishment that that we deserved, freely giving us the chance to come into a right relationship with him and to be part of the restored creation that God has promised. The cross not only saves us, but it shows us the goodness of God. It, It shows us why we can find our joy and our satisfaction in him, why we can long with certainty for the day when our joy will be complete. We can enjoy good things on this earth. There's no doubt about that, and we should. But how much more can we enjoy the one who gives us these good things and promises us so much more? I think the, the nature of work in a fallen world, I, I don't think I'll get too much disagreement with this, is that it's never finished. There, there are always loose ends, aren't there? And that's, that's the message of Ecclesiastes, essentially, that there are always loose ends in life. And my guess is that for most of us here this morning, there are, there are things on your mind about work, things that you weren't able to finish on Friday, things that you know will be there on Monday, things, things hanging over your head. The beauty of the gospel message is that we can rest in the finished work of Jesus. The most important work in my life is not any work that I do. It's Jesus dying to save me. And that work is finished. Jesus said it himself. I think it helps the way that we think about identity as when we think about having our identity in our work, the most important place that we can find our identity is not what I do from nine to five on Monday to Friday. It's knowing that God loved me enough to send his son to die for me so that I could call myself a child of God. That's a more important identity than anything that I can do. So where is it that you're seeking your joy and satisfaction? If it's in work, wealth and success, they're never going to be able to provide it in the same way that God can. They're never going to be able to provide it in the way that you're looking for it at the deepest heart level. God's made us to work. He's made us to be in relationship with one another. But most importantly, he's created us to know him and to enjoy him forever. And the finished work of Jesus has made that possible. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that our work may never be finished. Our work may never quite bring us the satisfaction that we want, but that Jesus' work is finished, that his work has brought us the satisfaction, that it has promised us true satisfaction. We ask that in the good days of work, in in the good days of life, that we can give thanks for that, that we can enjoy work as a good thing that you've given us, as a, something with, with great dignity and with, with great benefit. But please help us to know that there is something better to come. Please help us as we look at the material things around us, the things that we have, the things that we want. 
Help us to enjoy those as good gifts from you, but help us to know that there is so much more to come. Uh, For those of us struggling with work or, or struggling materially, help us to look to the good things that you promise in the long term. Help us, whatever our circumstances are now, to look to what you've promised, to trust you, and to find our joy in you more and more. And we pray for all of us that that we would rest in the finished work of Jesus and await with anticipation what that's guaranteed for us. A day when we'll see you face to face and get to enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.